0: This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Sanjib Khalida, editor in chief at Money twenty twenty, and I'm here with Rachel Morrissey, the podcast executive producer. Hey, Rach.
1: Hey, Sanj. Are you all set for the holidays?
0: I'm getting there. There's always a balancing act at the end of the year when I can get some satisfaction. From what we accomplished this year, but that's promptly followed by what I haven't accomplished yet. <laughs> <laughs> from, from the conversations I've had, I think I'm not alone there.
1: Oh, I can't even think about New Year's resolutions yet. I mean, I have so many ideas for what I want to do in a year, and this year I am just trying to survive. I mean, I'm barely getting presents out the door. I basically become the cliche e commerce shopper that every trend person was predicting. I blame it on my own personal supply chain.
0: (laughs) Well, I've got a tanker in my Suez Canal too. (laughs) E-commerce dependent and we aren't alone. Nope.
1: Uh, E-commerce is up 11% this November over last. And there was more online shopping on Black Friday than Cyber Monday. And this December, e-commerce sales will outpace last year when we were in a mid-pandemic by over 10%.
0: Cyber Monday is now cyber month and trending to cyber year. We've talked about how small businesses have sped up their online presence throughout the pandemic and how the ones who survived might be ahead now. But we haven't talked about the issues for mid to large retailers as they ride the new payments innovations like BNPL.
1: And, you know, actually, I spoke to someone about that very thing.
2: Essentially, I haven't met a single merchant in my my long payments career that hasn't got a, a list of things they want to do in payments that's, you know, longer than their arms, right? If you can take away that pain, if you can reduce that to a point where, you know, the stuff that you need to get done is done so you have more time to do the stuff you want to do. And I think you over and over again, every retailer I speak to is like, I'd love to do this, but I'm too busy doing this other stuff.
1: That was John Lund, and he's talking about how to reduce the pain for payments people at mid to large retailers.
0: I met John Lund. He was at our show in Las Vegas. He's one of those people with an amazing list of accomplishments who acts more like your friend from college or your next door neighbor.
1: Yeah. I mean, he is the CEO and co-founder of Gravy Payments Orchestration Booklet, and he is working on helping mid to large retailers pivot more easily and make changes to their payments options faster.
0: Yeah, it is more complicated than it seems, and we're talking about a very large market. A mid-sized retailer is defined as one that makes between ten million to one billion in revenue. That, you know, that's about two hundred thousand businesses that fit that description.
1: You know, and it feels counterintuitive that if a small retailer can plug into Shopify or Square or even GoDaddy and quickly add channels and payment options, then why wouldn't a larger retailer? But those models aren't built for these types of retailers. In a way, the pandemic has hit many of them hardest. I mean, while mid-sized grocery chains are probably doing well because of sector resilience, there have been record numbers of mid-sized companies declaring bankruptcy. Truthfully, mid-sized businesses in the U.S. have had to fight the behemoths for market share, and like many small businesses, they've had shrinking margins.
0: Yeah, the pandemic was just the final blow for some of them, but it really highlights how important it is for these companies to be able to stay up with payment trends to enhance their customer experience. Signing up for the nose-to-toes options is great, but several of these businesses require their own CRMs and multiple PSPs, particularly if you go international. That requires customized code
1: impossible to overstate how apparent this became during the pandemic. I mean, John explained the issue that most of these retailers ran into.
2: What happened is... You know, everyone got basically a kick in the ass. and it's like we need to do this right now. And when it comes to what we do, when they went back to to the to the engineering teams, the payments team is like, okay, let's modernise, and they're like, ah, sorry, this was custom code that we built over ten years to run the payment types, and it's basically a redesign, and it's a full on redesign of how you do stuff. So you know, the problem we are solving is we're trying to remove that bottleneck, and it's from you know, median retailers up to really large companies that these payment teams that they have just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I constantly, you know, when, when I was at PayPal and in, in investing, I'd constantly meet retailers uh, or talk to my portfolio companies who would be basically saying, look, this, customer, this client wants to implement our payment solution, but they're coming back with two-year timelines or eight-month timelines. And they really want it, but they can't do it. And then in, and you've got to balance like fixing that thing with a pump in it versus adding something that's going to increase my sales or even protect my sales. And the, the, these systems were not built for purpose. They were built for a pre-COVID world.
0: So they're a bit stuck trying to get code written, approved, and working to add all the appropriate payment options would take years. And they don't have that time.
1: No, so John and his team are trying to change the nature of it, disrupt the need for custom code.
2: What we're doing is augmenting the stack. We're making the stack easier to use. So at the moment, what we're replacing is custom in-house plumbing that merchants have all built to manage their payment stacks. And we're trying to build that as a product that makes it easier simpler and less resource hungry to use in the future. It's a tool. I mean, we're building a tool. So um, instead of uh, having your poor payment engineering team sitting there building custom code every time you add something new, but essentially this is a tool that allows someone in the product team or in the finance team to to manage that using a tool like you manage your email or you manage any other business.
0: You know what it reminds me of? The difference between cable and modern streaming options. And John is kind of building the Roku of payments. Go on. Well, you remember how back in the day cable was seen as an all-encompassing service, which provided all of your television needs through one contract? I mean, I'm talking about the 80s when there were only a few providers. And while there's been some premium channels like HBO for a while, it was pretty straightforward in terms of knowing what you'd be getting for the price that you're paying.
1: Oh, yeah, I remember those days. I also remember when Cable started adding all of the different packages. So we got to the point where you'd have a package for the sports channels and a package for the movie channels and a package for the history buffs, and the sci-fi nerds. And there were more packages than a mailroom at Christmas time.
0: <laughs> yeah, there they really were. And, and that's a little bit like the situation with these payment options, right? You might want to have a few specific options, but rather than being able to use them with one easy tool, you'd have to program each one individually, spending time and money to get them working with your own systems and then to maintain them as well.
1: Oh, yeah. And even when the streaming giants started taking pieces of the market, I mean, we still had a very nebulous, disjointed way of accessing the content. I mean, for a while, it was hard to find all of your subscriptions in one place. Some streaming platforms wouldn't play nice with certain streaming devices.
0: Exactly. And that's what made me think of Roku. It's true for a number of the other streaming devices, too. Their purpose is to collect all of your streaming services in one place to make it easy free to jump between each one so you can watch an episode of Sex and the City on HBO Max, go straight to Selling Sunset on Netflix, and jump from that to Fleabag on Amazon Prime.
1: Hmm, I'm more of a last week, tonight, Stranger Things and Marvelous Mrs. Maisel person myself.
0: (laughs) Sure, that works too. And while Gravy isn't interested in creating their own payment service, unlike Roku, who's making their own content now. They do act in much the same way of making it easy for you to have all your services in one place on your TV. Gravy is making it easy for retailers and e-commerce platforms to plug in any new payment services they want without having to reprogram their whole site.
1: And the friction of payments can definitely cost sales and customers. I mean, I am the worst when it comes to that. If I see something as I look at my phone, particularly TikTok, which Total tangent, public service announcement, please be aware that the clock app can suck your time away like no other. But if I see something, click on to buy, and I have to go through a lengthy checkout process, I'm aborting the mission. And I can't be alone. It's estimated that nearly 70% of all e-commerce carts are abandoned. It can cost you sales.
0: And it continues to happen. It can cost you customer relationships the last thing you want is for your customer to leave for a competitor. So one of the answers is removing the bottleneck of a digital pivot, particularly in a post-pandemic world, because you need to make it easier and give customers the options that they want.
1: And we spoke about some of the payments options that are driving sales. One of the biggest at the moment is BNPL. I mean, John and I spoke about how we focus on generational trends, But there are general trends that drive payments, particularly in times of questionable stability. And BNPL is definitely driving those now.
2: Things like buy now, pay later, it's obviously getting more and more popular. And a lot of retailers will go and implement a buy now, pay later provider. That's great. But buy now, pay later providers. And, and, you know, it's more of a lifestyle thing, right? So there's certain buy now, pay later providers that Different groups will use. So, you know, I know, I know a few of them where their, their audience is exclusively women under 30. And right. And, and if you come to a website and you like, you happen to be one of the people that likes that by now pay later. And I come to your website and there's credit cards or the one I never use, I'm going to go somewhere else. <laughs> so so that, that that's the thing is you need the flexibility in your payment system to be able to, you know change and swap and provide those different groups what what they want to do to pay.
0: Buy now, pay later is unquestionably driving sales. The popularity of it keeps growing among every generation from boomers to Gen Z.
1: I was following fintech Twitter and someone wrote about standing in a lunch line where a girl was asking to use afterpay to pay for her sandwich. That means it isn't about the cost. That type of payment is driving loyalty to very specific services.
0: And as John said there, BNPL services become personal. And if you don't have the one that the customer prefers, then you might lose that customer relationship. It's why the idea of being able to add payment options to your stack so quickly is important. In the streaming analogy, it's like when Amazon and Google were clashing heads and it ended up with YouTube no longer working on the Fire TV device. They solve for it now but for a while, it was maybe a reason why you choose a Roku over a Fire Stick.
1: Oh, yeah. I remember that. You know, uh, it's like a, there's another trend that's very popular for Gen Z. And it's only using payments options already integrated into their lives or that give them rewards.
2: Rewards is going through an interesting change at the moment. So I think um, five years ago, six years ago, when I talked to sort of Gen Z, millennial people, the only, only time they wanted to use a card was when they were getting rewards. That's, that was for, for a big deal. So you know, I'd speak to people, so the only time I use my credit card is when I'm booking a flight because I get big rewards on it. The rest of the time, I prefer use Venmo or something else. But there's been this sort of change where the retailers have realized that rewards is actually a powerful way to drive people in-store. So you've seen these sort of new cashback companies appear. And, and, and some of the actions I've seen from them, are like one of the studies I saw, one of them move an entire group from one side of the street to the other side of the street for shopping that week by offering cashback. This is an area where the retailers are starting to say a little bit like, I should own this.
1: So I see credit cards as a service and retailer-owned credit cards being a very important piece of this puzzle. I mean, if you can add a credit card inexpensively and own the customer relationship, it could be a game changer for these retailers.
0: I almost hate to drag out the analogy again, but this is like HBO Max owning the customer relationship with their content and not distributing it through a third party. Some cable subscription premium add-ons have utilized third party streaming services for distribution. But recently, HBO pulled all of their content from Amazon and Hulu to drive people to the HBO Max app so that they own the customer relationship.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that way, they can apply that data to other parts of their business and services. There's also one last payments possibility that I wanted to ask John about. With crypto getting so much attention and becoming more a part of financial services, we need to think about ways to add crypto possibilities.
2: So what we give... You, as a retailer, is a tool that allows you to go in and do this in a visual, layer, no code fashion, pick and drag, add payment types, and more importantly, try new things. Because, you know, a, a, a silly example is I keep on um, meeting retailers. I look, we'd really like to see what happened if we add something like Bitcoin to our checkout. And, uh, but we can't because, you know, it's going to take eight months. And if it doesn't work, then, you know, it doesn't work. And we've wasted eight months and we could have fixed something else. And, and so we want to in, reintroduce that freedom into it where you can sort of deploy something like Bitcoin to 5% of your customer base and see how it goes. And if it works out, great. If it doesn't work out, switch it off. And it's not cost you anything apart from a few clicks and a bit of configuration.
1: I think what John is saying about crypto is at the crux of everything that companies like Gravy are initiating. If adding payments options is easier, cheaper and faster, it also means it's easier and cheaper to outmode them. It allows them to experiment
0: with possibilities. Like canceling a streaming service you don't want anymore. You cancel the subscription and remove it from Roku and you're done. But the experimentation means you could help customer bases that haven't had traditional access. For those operating without traditional financial tools, adding payments options outside a credit card is a matter of survival.
2: Pre-COVID, I worked on a a project that was looking at, you know, in-store checkout, you know, the sort of cashier list store right so the ability to walk into a store take things off the shelf and walk out and it was pointed out like that this is you're discriminating against a huge amount of the population who one don't have a smartphone and two don't have a credit card because the system you're building here requires both so you've just managed to create a store that only allows rich people to shop and 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 this really like struck me at the time as this is not a good thing but secondly During COVID, it it sort of hit me over the last two years. Like we've all been stuck at home. Now, if you don't have a credit card or a bank account and you're not allowed to leave the house, how the hell are you shopping? And you're definitely not getting the best deals and you're not getting, you know, things that other people are able to get. And that's a little worrying to me because, you know, the best deals are most important for the people who can't afford things.
0: All this talk about the streaming giants has got me thinking. I think we could turn this show into the next big streaming TV hit.
1: Well, it wouldn't be the first time a podcast has made the leap to TV.
0: Yeah, I I, I can see it now. In a world where fintech is on the rise, the public is confused about crypto and nobody knows what's going to happen with NFTs. Two unlikely heroes will rise to bring clarity to the world's payments industry woes.
1: <laughs> oh, I can see you now in the spandex suit and the long flowing cape.
0: <laughs> what, what would your costume be?
1: I mean, I've always had a lot of admiration for the 1992 Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman suit, but I don't know how comfortable <laughs> that would be in the new working from home world that we're in. So I'd probably go with some sweatpants and a comfortable sweater and use my face mask and some dark glasses to hide my identity.
0: A true superhero for our times.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that is it for this episode of The Money Pot. We'd like to thank John Lund for being our guest this week. We'd also like to thank the chef who makes the gravy in The Money Pot, Roland Boddenham.
0: And if you like The Money Pot, please leave us a review in iTunes to help others find the show. If you have any ideas for other topics you'd like us to cover, Please reach out to us at podcast at moneytwentywen dot com. Thank you for listening. This is essential, essential. 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 This is essential audio.